I'd invite you to turn with me this morning to Luke chapter 4. Luke chapter 4, verses 16 through 30 will be the passage we read. It's page 1596 in your pew Bibles. Luke chapter 4. We continue to look at Jesus, our, our Jewish Messiah. What does it mean that Jesus... Uh, that God sent Jesus in a Jewish culture with, with all of the, uh, the Old Testament background to it, all of the geography of, of the place, all of the cultural distinctives. What did it mean that Jesus was, was Jewish, and how does that help us understand a little bit better who he was and, and how we need to become Christ-like, become like our rabbi? So we've looked at a lot of the different cultural things, but now we're going to look at something a little bit different, and that is we're going to look at Jesus' hometowns, plural, because there were two hometowns, besides Bethlehem, of course, where he was born, uh, that Jesus laid claim to and that they could lay claim to Jesus. He spent most of his life growing up in Nazareth, but when he started his ministry later in life, he intentionally moved to Capernaum. And that, the Bible tells us, became his own town or his hometown. So I want to look at his relationship with those two uh, towns over uh, the next couple of weeks, or actually the next couple of sermons I will be doing. I'll be gone next Sunday, but then we'll be back for the following. And we'll look then at Capernaum. But we're going to start with Jesus of Nazareth. And a story that Luke tells us right at the outset of his ministry Luke sets it right after his temptation. Jesus comes back uh, from being tempted in the wilderness. And in Luke 4, verse 14, we read, Jesus returned to Galilee in the power of the Spirit, and news about him spread through the whole countryside. He taught in their synagogues, and everyone praised him. So Luke's telling us, you know, there's, there's been stuff that's already been going on. He's, been, he's, he's had quite a ministry already. He's been teaching in various synagogues throughout But now he goes back to Nazareth. He went to Nazareth where he had been brought up, and on the Sabbath day he went into the synagogue as was his custom. And he stood up to read. The scroll of the prophet Isaiah was handed to him. Unrolling it, he found the place where it is written, The Spirit of the Lord is on me because he has anointed me to preach good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim freedom for the prisoners and recovery of sight for the blind to release the oppressed and to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. He then rolled up the scroll, gave it back to the attendant, and sat down. The eyes of everyone in the synagogue were fastened on him, and he began by saying to them, Today, this scripture is fulfilled in your hearing. All spoke well of him. Notice this response. All spoke well of him, and were amazed at the gracious words That came from his lips. Isn't this Joseph's son? They asked. Jesus said to them, Surely you'll quote this proverb to me Physician, heal yourself. Do here in your hometown what we have heard you did in Capernaum. I tell you the truth, he continued, no prophet is accepted in his hometown. I assure you that there were many widows in Israel in Elijah's time when the sky was shut for three and a half years and there was a severe famine throughout the land. Yet Elijah was not sent to any of them, but to a widow in Zarephath in the region of Sidon. And there were many in Israel with leprosy in the time of Elisha the prophet, yet not one of them was cleansed, only Naaman the Syrian. 
all the people of the synagogue were furious when they heard this. They got up, drove him out of the town, and took him to the brow of a hill on which the town was built in order to throw him down the cliff. Now, that is what you know as stoning. That's what stoning looked like in biblical times. The first thing they did was throw the person off a cliff. If they didn't die in that fall, then they would throw rocks down. They would stone that person at the bottom of the hill. So that's biblical stoning. They were going to do that to Jesus, but we read he walked right through the crowd and he went on his way. Let's open with prayer before we look at this passage a little more. Father God, we pray that you give us an understanding of these words and not only an understanding more of who Jesus was, but understanding of our relationship to him as well. We pray in his name. Amen. While I was in seminary, I preached at my hometown church. I blush today at how poorly I preached. But I was also a bit frustrated at the reaction of my friends and, and their parents and others who knew me as a child. It was almost as if they were saying, isn't that Fred and Mary's boar? Remember when? Evidently there was some obstacle to the message because of what they remembered about the messenger. Well, since then, I've always been heartened by Jesus' visit to his hometown, where he commented that no prophet is accepted in his hometown. But there's more going on here than simply bad memories of a hometown boy. Before we can understand the story set in Nazareth, and the picture that you see is a, a painting from the 1880s, or the 1830s of, of Nazareth, before we can understand the story, it's helpful to know something about the synagogue, because that's the setting of this story. This is the synagogue in Chorazin, undoubtedly there when Jesus was there, and undoubtedly Jesus, this was one of the synagogues that Jesus preached in. We can tell that it's from Jesus' era because of the black basalt, uh, as in contrast to the Baram synagogue, which was obviously built later with the types of materials that they had. But what's a synagogue? Synagogues, the word synagogue simply means gathering or assembly. And synagogues grew during the exile in Babylon as people now had to find a place to worship since they no longer had a temple there. And believing also that the destruction of the temple was because God was not pleased with their sacrifices they began to focus on the studying of the Torah, the, the first five books of the Bible, and on obedience, and, and made that their sacrificial worship. Now, I want you to note that the synagogue was not a building first, kind of like a church. A church is the people, right? Not the building, first and foremost. The same was true with the synagogue. It simply means assembly. It was a community of people who studied Torah together. And even after return from the Babylonian captivity and rebuilding the temple, they still continued to study Torah together and submit to God in community centers that now became known for their gathering. They now became known as synagogues. And then once the temple fell in 70 AD, uh, synagogues became more like churches with uh, regular worship and a regular 
structure, religious structure. In fact, not only did they become like churches, but in, in a sense they were a precursor to a church and to church buildings. As you can see from the structure, this is an re artist's rendition of a typical synagogue in the Galilee area. Now, synagogues were generally rectangular, with the outside walls collected, co connected to the roof with inner columns, which created an outer gallery, you can see, which is a looks like a series of steps. They're not actually steps. They're actually seats. In fact, this is a synagogue where the, it's preserved, the synagogue is preserved pretty well because this is in the middle of the desert. This is actually on, Mount on the mountain of Masada, and that's a synagogue that the Jews had up there. And you can see at least a couple of sides have those steps or those seats, and you can still see the columns that went up and would have connected with the roof as well. These were what Jesus refers to as the chief seats or the most important seats, which he said the Pharisees always liked to claim. Where do the other people sit? Well, the other people sat on the ground in, there in the center. And then, in the very center of that open area, stood a bema, probably made of wood, and that's why none of them have been preserved. A, but right smack dab in the middle was a bema, which we would call today our pulpit area, in a sense. And that was a platform from which the Torah was read, and then nearby was a special chair called a Moses seat. This is the Moses seat that was found in Chorazin. And the Moses seat was where the Torah reader would sit before and after reading the Scriptures. So they do it a little different than us. They all stood for the reading of the Scripture. Then the Torah reader, the preacher, sat down to preach. There's a chair over here. No, I won't do it today. And then, and then the people listened to his teaching. And to teaching, um, it, well then also as you uh, looked around, you'd see somewhere near, near what they would consider the, the front of the sanctuary area against one of the walls, you would find it a Torah closet. Uh, also called the Holy Ark, after the Ark of the Covenant in the temple. And that was where the Torah scrolls were kept. And the, not only the Torah scrolls, but, but other scrolls of the Old Testament as well. And then outside, in the front of the building, in the, what you see in the lower right-hand corner there, or left-hand corner, is a mikvah. And that was a ceremonial bath that they had to wash, wash through, not just to cleanse themselves physically, but to to purify themselves before God. And uh, they did that before, before worship. So after purifying oneself in a mikvah, you entered the synagogue. A service could be held only if you had a minion, which was ten people, or actually ten men. The service began with Sabbath prayers, probably the 18 benedictions, which is a quite lengthy prayer. Maybe that's the precursor to the long prayer of our services. Then there's other forms of worship, singing and the like. And then the chazan, the keeper, he's called an attendant here in Luke 4, would go to the Torah closet and bring out the scrolls for the day and bring them up to the bema to be read. 
And they, he did, as he did that, the people stood and sang. And, and actually, if you've ever seen a picture of a, a Jewish worship service, a video, they're, they're actually touching and kissing the Torah as it comes down the aisle. Respect for the Word of God. The Torah reader then would stand on the bema and read the passages appointed for the day and then sit down in Moses' seat to teach. Usually it was a testimony about how this scripture applied to his life, how it might apply to everyone's life. And there was often then a discussion and conversation about the passage afterward. And then the people stood, and the blessing of Aaron was pronounced, that is the high priestly blessing that I generally use at the end of the services, and they would leave. Now, by Jesus' day, this had been going on for several centuries, and the Torah readings, in particular, the first five books of the Bible had been set for each Sabbath day for some 200 years. For some 200 years, you could look back and say, I know what's going to happen 200 years from now on this particular Sabbath. They were all set. And depending on the size of your community and your synagogue, the synagogue would also have a group of readers, a schedule of readers that would come and read uh, maybe one to three years in advance. So the, the Torah readings and the Haftarah readings were set. The, the, script, the uh, person that was to read them was set. All this to say that God has orchestrated all of this to happen when it was Jesus' turn to read. He was probably on the reading schedule, being from Nazareth, and the particular text that Jesus was going to read. That was all set by God in advance. And that sets the stage for Jesus' return to his hometown of Nazareth. He's actually living in Capernaum at this time. Now here's a picture of, of Nazareth as you might see it today. Uh, and uh, here's a, maybe you get a little bit better picture of the artist's rendition from the first century. You see all of the different hills in the background, the town in the foreground. The very foreground you see a, a grape or wine press there. And this was a picture actually taken in the 1880s of Nazareth as it looked at that time. Nazareth was founded by a group of refugees from the Babylonian exile. They came from the exile about 150 B.C. They had become almost a cultic group, and I don't mean by that that they strayed from the Jewish religion, but they had become cultic and that they were kind of closed, and they kind of thought a little higher of themselves than than they thought of everyone else. And the reason was they had decided that Messiah was going to come from them. So they named their town after Isaiah 11, verse 1. A shoot will come up from the stump of Jesse, from his roots, a branch will bear fruit. Shoot was the Hebrew word netzer, and so they called their town Netzeret, branch town, if you will, or something like that. Netzer. Now why would they turn to this prophecy of a shoot, a netzer, coming from Jesse? Because they were Jesse's family. They were Jesse's family. And they took this prophecy literally. They believed that this shoot, who was uh, believed to be Messiah by that day, that this shoot, that the Messiah, would actually come from them. And of course, people ridiculed them for their spiritual snobbery and the like. Although it turns out they were right. Well, now it's Jesus' turn to read 
here at his hometown synagogue. He's been doing remarkable things in Capernaum, so the synagogue is likely packed. First he reads the, the Torah portion from one of the first five books of the Bible. Then he reads the Haftarah portion, which was from another part of the Bible, often from one of the prophets. And then he gives his testimony, his sermon. Now Luke doesn't tell us what the Torah portion was. And he only gives us a small uh, glimpse at the Haftarah reading. But we know the rest of it. And the readers of Luke would have known the rest of it as well. In fact, Jesus has just read from Isaiah 60 verse 21... Then all the people will be righteous, and they will possess the land forever. They are the shoot, the netzer, which I have planted. And then it goes into Isaiah 61, the portion that Luke records. The Spirit of the Lord is on me because he has anointed me to preach good news to the poor. He sent me to proclaim freedom for the prisoners, recovery of sight for the blind, to release the oppressed, and to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. Everybody knew this was Messiah's job description. This is Messiah saying, okay, I'm the shoot, and this is what's going to happen. The Spirit's going to come on me, and this is what I'm going to do. And so, what, but what happens next after Jesus reads this, I think is sometimes misunderstood. It shouldn't be if we read the, the passage carefully. But I think it, I imagine it went something like this. Jesus then, after reading that, sat down in Moses' seat and said, Today, this scripture is fulfilled in me. Now that is, those are audacious words. Clearly the most blatant claim of Jesus to be the Messiah. So what was their response to that blatant claim to be Messiah? It wasn't to stone him. That would come later. No, their response was something like, we knew it! We knew Messiah would come from us, from Nazareth. He's one of us. Isn't he Joseph's son? We read that, that it was a positive response. They all spoke well of him. They considered his words gracious. This is what they were waiting for and perhaps had suspected about Jesus. And then Jesus said, no prophet is accepted in his hometown. What? He's just been accepted. What's going on? What's, what's Jesus talking about? Well, obviously, there's other stuff that's been going on, and Jesus kind of gets to that in, his next, in the next things he says. But obviously, they are they're ask, wanting Jesus to show them to do miracles in Nazareth like he did in Capernaum, to prove that he's Messiah. And that Jesus takes issue with. And then he talks about how Elijah... And Elisha actually went outside of Israel to do miracles because they found no faith in Israel. And what Jesus is doing in a very rabbinic way, this is a way that rabbis would teach all the time, Jesus is basically saying, I, and I don't find any faith here. So I'm going back to Capernaum. And that's when they attempt to stone him by throwing him off a hill. And that's probably the hill 
uh, the, that backs right up to the town of Nazareth. They were angry because Jesus had the nerve to suggest that it's not the community or the family or the synagogue that you come from that gets you into the kingdom of God. But it's only faith that gets you into the kingdom of God. You know, it's so easy for us to think, you know, the, where I grew up, the church I attend, the denomination I'm part of, the parents I had will give me access to God. What are you maybe holding on to today? Oh, I'm a church member. Oh, I was raised in a Christian family. My parents, my grandparents were, were godly Christians. Oh, I come often to church. Oh, look at how much I give. Our denomination has the best theology, the only theology. And we can hang our hat on whole lots of things. But Jesus says, no, those aren't the way you get into the kingdom. It's only by faith. It's only by faith. And if you try any other way, there will be no miracles here. And no entrance into the kingdom. Paul discovered that, and as we read at the outset of this service, in Philippians 3, he says he considers all his heritage, education, degrees, righteous zeal as rubbish in order to gain Christ by faith. Have you come into the kingdom by faith? There is no other way not even if you're from Nazareth or not even if you go to Colorville East. Let's pray. Dear Jesus, we thank you for your words. We thank you for, most of all, your grace. We know, as we read throughout the Scriptures today, there's no way we could do it on our own. There's no way we can access your kingdom on our own, only through you and what you have done for us. So help us to cling to you and not to other things in life and help us to walk with you each day. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's respond by singing When We Walk With The Lord, which talks about trusting, which talks about putting our faith in Jesus, first of all. Let's stand and sing the three stanzas from number 327 in the Lift Up Your Hearts hymnal.